Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at purentgeo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 407th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host, Mason, joined by my two co-hosts, Abe, who is currently not coughing any, so I'm going to give Spencer some time to vamp there, and then Spencer, who has uh, recovered from coughing in the most inopportune time, but don't worry, we got your back. I cannot recommend less the having a sinus infection, getting better, and then two days later getting a new sinus infection and a double ear infection. Of the things that I would rate zero out of 10 of the things that I've done in my life, appendicitis is the only thing that was worse. Sounds pretty terrible. Doesn't sound bad though, Abe. Talking all about control. True. I love control. I think this is Abe's dream episode. <laughs> no, no. I already had my dream episode. We had hanging on. It was great. <laughs> yeah. It Abe's actually all downhill from here. We should have got a different guest on before. <laughs> he, did, he did his first episode was like the topic, his training grounds. Then he had his dream guest on. Now we're doing control. Like he's just going to quit at the end of the show. <laughs> now, what do you mean? It keeps on getting better somehow. Well, we, we, as long as we hold out on the humans episode, we should be fine. Many people think Abe's Jess guy guy, but secretly I know Abe. I know the truth. Champion of the parish in you? Like this. Oh my god. <laughs> this It's true. Well, I know it to be true, you know it to be true, but hey, that's for later in the show. First, we need to be always improving. That is the main point of the show. And Abe, you're up first. I want to know how SCG was as well, so I hope it ties in. Crazy enough, it does. Yeah, this weekend was SCG Con Pittsburgh. It was a team-limited event. Of Streets of Nukapenna, I've been doing a lot of work to prepare for it. Talked about that in the last couple episodes. And uh, the event was a blast. We we made a pretty deep run. We were, what, X1-1 with three rounds to go. And then lost three in a row because our pool was a little, a little below par. But something that I felt that I'd really improved at and I was really feeling the work of through this was my sideboarding in Limited had really... I was popping off sideboarding for not only myself but often helping work with my teammates as, as i was the, the b seat of the the team working on and and using the understanding that i had of the flow of the games the things that were important and using all of that information to make the, the best decisions possible about the cards that we were uh worried about boarding in boarding out and i think probably every match uh, especially because in, in the pools where i had the weakest deck there are full games like three or four full games that i won on the back of just my decisions that I was making for myself to to sideboard or helping my teammates with to know either restatting your creatures to make sure that you're lining up well against the creatures that they have shown you or w- whether or not to go into another color to to play more powerful cards or 
what kind of removal is actually bad, even though normally it's good. Lots of small things I was really, really feeling that I hadn't hadn't really felt in a while. It was really interesting to feel like not only for understanding my deck and the cards that I was playing, but also just across all colors in the format and all sorts of matchups. I uh, I had that that mastery and that feeling of it. I was able to help help my team a lot with it, and that was really awesome. It's cool when those sort of things come together, especially in the moments where it's like, oh dang, you know, these O fours normally not what it's about, but right now, now's the one in a million. Spencer, what was your always improvement moment this week? Yeah, so this week, um, I kind of was more focused on magic than I have been recently, and part of that was wanting to brew decks. Uh, surprisingly, only got to three or four decks before finding a few that I really liked. But within both of the main, well, actually all three, I'll, I'll kind of talk about the three decks that uh, I've ended up working on the most. The first one is Nyapod in standard. The second one is Boomer Jund in standard. Uh, and the third one is Jund uh, Bloodstorm. It actually has turned back into a snow deck. You know, one of the things that I talked about, I think it was two or three weeks ago, I talked about, maybe maybe it was last week that I was talking about laziness there was a long time ago that we did an episode on being an active participant in your games. And, you know, part of not being lazy is that, but something that I noticed caught myself doing by becoming that active participant and becoming less lazy this week is noticing how much I just tend to focus on trying to get the game to a spot where I can't lose rather than trying to win. The way that I really started to notice this and I think the thing that really tipped me off, guys, I gotta tell you, Stomper, it's everything I wanted and more. Oh my gosh, is that card sick? For the listeners, like, what's that one? Topiary Stomper, thank you. It is the 4-4 Vigilance. I don't know how that was not the thing in my head that was like, you know, like those moments where people, it, you were, whether you were playing Volokut, uh, Titan Shift, or Wolf Run Ramp, the number of times where someone was like, it has Trample with Primal Titan, the number of times where I was like, oh yeah, it has Vigilance already, is inappropriate. But also, because of that, you get into a lot of board states where you're supposed to be swinging with that thing. Because of that, I noticed moments in the Boomer Gen deck where I was not being aggressive enough, in the Pod deck where I was trying to set up inevitability rather than just attacking my opponent. One of the really cool things about that, that Team or Pod deck that... I liked so much. And honestly, like if you look at, you know, some of my favorite decks of all time, you know, they have blood, Bright elf, scape shift, inferno, like aggressive cards. Right. Um, but you know, the laser you get in magic, the, the less you use those cards to their maximum effectiveness. And honestly, this week realizing the number of times where I just had four free damage or I uh, had a three turn clock. If I did things the right way, that I probably wouldn't have noticed when I was being lazy was quite a bit. I guess my most improving moment is this. It's kind of a continuation of last week where it's not like I was losing a lot before, but I wasn't getting as many games in. I wasn't getting the most out of my cards and I was winning for the wrong reasons. That's kind of refreshing to like, be like, you know what? You have not been putting in the work that you should. And here are some things that you can be doing that are going to help you. You know, I've got two modern one case coming up and I don't think that being super lazy is something that you can do with Merktide right now. I think it's got a huge target on its back. 
like a massive target and everybody's gunning for you and you just like, I can't be lazy in the next two weeks. And that's going to be the same regardless of whether I'm playing standard or other things for me right now. And, you know, learning to be more aggressive and finding the spots where I have profitable attacks and where, where I have the clock, even though I like to play those mid range combo control decks, those ramp decks, like I need to find those spots. And that was it for me this week. I definitely uh, echo your statement about you can't be lazy with Merktide. Th- that's a deck where it's like you kind of have to play every game like it's the fresh game. It's really hard to lean back on heuristics outside of things like one drop sequencing and stuff like that in the dark. You know, uh, I'm curious to see how that all goes and hopefully, you know, it keeps going. Well, being the beatdown is pretty, uh, pretty important. I don't know how much y'all follow Hearthstone creators, but they actually they had a, a very similar thing to what Sincer was talking about, how they were talking about there was like a big tournament and. They were saying that the the thing that the people in the mid who are like kind of good but not great do too much is they look for value trades because in Hearthstone creatures can attack creatures and they don't go face enough. And uh, I saw a really great tweet where essentially someone said, "Good players find good value trades. Great players find when they don't need to value trade." And uh, I, I think that's pretty similar from Magic too, where it's like you know you can hold back on D and the defense the defender's favorite in Magic by like a lot, but finding great attacks is you know. Super important. Can I add to this really yeah, quickly? Yeah. This is actually something that I think that we've seen in Magic the last, I don't know, couple of years, where if you're a boomer like like me or Abe, you know, there was this period of time where, like, we'll actually get into this when we talk about Zendikar tap-out control and kind of understanding some of the evolution of Magic. But, Mason, you actually said this on the podcast once, that people think that Magic theory is evergreen, and it's not. And people need to learn that like magic theory is not evergreen. And one thing that happened really early in Hearthstone is magic players were really good at Hearthstone to start just for owning the ladder because we understood a couple things. We understood the theory of fire. We understood card advantage and it was enough to stand on. And in all honesty, like as somebody that plays a lot of Pokemon TCG, it's the same thing. Like just understanding card advantage and understanding that type of stuff gets you pretty far, but it only gets you so far. You have to keep evolving your theory. It's not like the things that people were doing in, you know, in magic 10 years ago, as crazy as that sounds are the things that work today. All of a sudden being aggressive in magic is way more important because you, people just play to the board more creatures are better. And that has been a constant for the last 10 years and you have to adjust. You can't just, you know, value trading is the thing that we're talking about where I was being lazy and doing that. So there's a really good point, Mason. We'll probably touch on this later too, but I mean, I think Abe, I'm curious to hear what you think about this statement, but what Spencer mentioned about 10 years ago, things have changed so much. It's wild to think I've almost been playing magic for 10 years, but control has changed the most in that era, right? Like control went from a thing that is always about making it go super long to now it's almost more more often it's about finding your spot and pushing in that's definitely interesting when you talk about control specifically because control used to be pull so far ahead that you're going to be able to invalidate every other card that's played you're going to be the only person playing the game by the end of it because you answer all the things going on and now with the way the things have, have changed and the way people build their decks is different the cards that control decks have is different the the games are about different things fundamentally that hasn't been viable for you know, like 10 years. We haven't been able to pull that far ahead in a game. And so when the game is about that, it's more about setting up a position where 
you are the player who is the only player doing anything productive in a game for enough turns to win. I, I think, and especially, you know, having played Hearthstone in the early days myself, I remember that kind of being one of the early, the early ideas that it, it's funny to me that they still talk about it is that like, you know, if you just want to start getting better at Hearthstone, what you should do is attack your opponent's face more and force them to make the right trade decision. Put the decision on them. And that kind of point exists through through both games and still kind of does between aggression and control. I don't remember if this was an episode of Constructed Criticism or my previous podcast. I apologize that I don't remember, but it also would have been first 100 episodes, so it's like not posted somewhere right now if it was CC. But we actually had Cedric Phillips on a podcast. Uh, his tip for getting better at magic was really interesting. He said that one of the things that helped him the most was at one point he just decided that he was going to spend a week where he just attacked every turn and see. And I, I, I think that he, uh, Mason's laughing. I, I, I've heard this story before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you hear from me on this podcast? Uh, I, or did you hear from we, we've, I mean, it's one of those stories that gets kind of told by people. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just always so funny to me that what Cedric did for a week was, yeah. <laughs> I think that the insight behind what he said though, was yeah, obviously this is like a stupid activity, but it made me see the spots where it was right. While I didn't challenge myself to be that aggressive this week, I definitely thought about that story when I realized that I wasn't being aggressive. I already have challenged myself a lot in the last year to like, I mean, I did a whole stream. I think, I don't know, years, three years long during COVID. So who knows? But, you know, I did this whole like mono red period where like I was just jamming mono red. Then I did mono white. Like I've really tried to challenge myself in this area but it's funny, the second I go to like some ramp deck or some like three color deck, I'm just like, no, 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 I'll win eventually. And it's just, it's a weakness. So what about you, Mason? By the way, listener, if you're listening and you want to do that in the modern age, I highly suggest playing Prowess and Modern. Uh, if you're looking for a deck to like figure out how to attack better, that's a deck that uh, puts it on you pretty hard. Or just play some limited. Yeah, you know, I'll... you could just do that. <laughs> It's funny because you guys were talking during the segment and I already realized that I missed the opportunity in the show notes to put in Grix's Death Shadow as a control deck and put in Blue Red Turns from Last Standard as a control deck in the show notes because I think they both offer a really interesting perspective on like what a control deck is in the format. So um, we're going deep, guys. Mason, go before I keep going. My always referring moment uh, is twofold. I mentioned that I would talk a little bit about my limited thing as things go on. And I figure A might be a little interested. I know you're always there. And Spencer likes Limited enough, too. Uh, I 3 0 my first draft. I did it. I got three Gathering Throngs. I had two Comparator Express. It was great. It was awesome. Not how I would have expected that one to end. But... <laughs> you know, who would say having all these good cards was good? But uh, no, in drafting that, the thing I'm trying to work on specifically for draft is because playing Magic while limited is obviously different uh, than a lot of constructed formats, especially formats like modern, uh, which recently has dominated my time. The d- drafting is the part that is hard to get practice elsewhere in. And so I really wanted to make sure to pay attention for signals and look at what things are coming my way. And I saw things like strangle get past me pretty, I would say late into pack one, sixth or seventh pick. And so I kind of took those cards and made sure to pick up a couple of the hideouts. I think it's what they're called the new evolving wild variants. So that I could play, you know, a couple strangles if I had them in the end and was able to do that and have like a really good green white deck that had some nice removal. And so that was like a cool, like, you know, like make sure to go and try and practice this thing, actually have it come out and pay out 
uh, was super cool. And then my second always moving moment was looking for spots uh, to really use my cards to their maximum efficiency. I have played a bunch of Magic over the weekend. I, I played Draft, and then I played a bunch of Leagues, and I played Legacy, and I played Modern. And in a bunch of spots, I tried to find times to really get the most from my cards and make sure, like, am I getting good value or am I getting what I need from the cards? And I think there's a really big difference where, like... The, the balancing act, right? Mm-hmm. It, that's hard man it's real it's really hard because for a bad example is days right we're like days you're really happy to trade anything but like a card like force of will or something like my march of the world can we back up because sure. i think because i think that like if you're listening now while this is an evergreen podcast like we're talking about just disruption right like when would when do you pop your disruption i was talking about actual days but i so that's fair, I, but I do think that the the thing that you said applies to standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I, I think it applies to all all the four spike variants. I am a pretty big believer that for the four spikes, barring something world ending like a Winota that you don't have an answer to for like a following or a coming turn, maybe something like a Lost to Spider Queen that I kind of just take them where I can get them, uh, and I just trade my card because those cards fall off very quickly and can become easily played around. So that that's like an interesting spot there. In Legacy, it's a little different where I will almost just always take it because the games are so much more condensed in mana usage and like losing a land matters pretty much. But for like things like Modern, there are cards like Otherworldly Light where it is a card that is a essentially a catch-all. You know, it doesn't kill Planeswalkers, but it gets just about everything else and it's very expensive. So when you find spots where you can like work it into your turns in a deck like Money Pile it's very beneficial for you to like get those sort of trades. And anytime we can get like the basically kill a token or an Urza saga, those are like over the moon. And I was playing against someone at the local store who was playing a really unique deck where they had like a red, white value deck with like Imperial recruiter, Kiki, Jiki, Felidar, restoration angel. And I had a spot where I was like, okay, I can get some pretty good value and like actually remove this militia bugler on this turn and I was like, well, is that what like, my card's supposed to be doing here? Like, yes, they have things like flicker this on the next turn. Yes, there's those sort of things. Like, what do I do here? And I came to the conclusion that I was like, well, while getting rid of this does turn off a bunch of their cards and would be kind of nice for my mana, I can instead just cycle this land and I can save this card so that when they go for it, I can actually just kind of blow them out a little harder and go for that higher value and kind of squeeze it more. I honestly think the way that Magic players could get better at the thing that you're talking about. Do you remember how they were like um, Amulet Titan puzzles? Mm-hmm. I almost wish that we had Brainstorm and... Uh, Brainstorm is actually a bad example. I think the best example might actually be... Um, yeah, I think Expressive Iteration like, is a really good example of like... What is this Expressive Iteration in your hand supposed to do? And like those puzzles... I think if somebody posts those, like made a Twitter account dedicated to it, I would snap, follow, retweet. And I think the, the the question of how much does this card need to get me versus how much can this card get me versus is there an in-between that is acceptable is a really tough puzzle to solve at Magic. I would add to it, as I'm always banging this drum in Modern, of expressive iteration being held for even longer, like can you make do with getting by without using this card, even if like there are some really high upsides playing it now in the hopes that like it will find the actual answers you need later because you'll have more information. If you can turn your iteration into a brainstorm, 
Like, it's busted. What I'm saying is, like, it's about that balancing act. As someone who plays a lot of Hammer Time in Modern, I encounter a lot is using the tendency of a lot of players to play in that pattern of, like, I need to ex- make these exchanges because the games are condensed. Um, like, something I'll often do is sequence in a way that ex- makes it look like I'm exposed to something like a force of vigor or a solitude, when in actuality, I'm looking for that exchange to happen in this way, right? If I'm making a blue-white opponent use their solitude to save themselves 10 points of life on, like, a creature I don't really care about that much, like on a Stoneforge Mystic, uh, but it involves them using a solitude and a white card, that's often a really, really beneficial exchange for me compared to, you know, if I try to force the game to go a little longer and then they're tapping five mana for it. And really, when I'm working with people in coaching sessions, something I often, an exercise I'll tell them to do is to just, even when they're playing alone, explain to themselves and explain to me why it is they're playing the cards they play. And I think that if you're trying to get better at understanding when to when to know which way to go with what cards using and when, that exercise is, is really good and you can avoid falling into pitfalls of like, my card A trades with card B and I need to do this right now and timing your spells better can really come from that. It's really important. Let's move on to housekeeping before we get to our main topic of the episode. We have a pretty big thing we need to talk about. And Spencer, do you want to take it away? Uh, last quarter, we owned up to the fact that people were not interested in alchemy and we canceled our half K. And we are moving those prizes over, making a 1K plus. The plus stands for additional prizes based on entry, for what it's worth. The 1K is Oasis Game Store credit. So we'll double our normal Oasis prizes, and then we will give out additional prizes based on attendance. The format will be Pioneer. The client will be MTGO. Use that 62 and single. Oh, sorry, 62 and single. Use code 62 and single to get 15% off your first two months with Manitraders, hashtag sponsored. Manitraders, we are in discussions. We're still waiting to hear back from you. We would love you to sponsor this podcast. Uh, as you can see, we're doing events like this, promoting your products. So uh, reach back out, reach back out. The entry fee, if you are not a patron of $10 or more, is $10. So it's just free entry if you become a patron of $10 or more. Uh, the event link, we will host it on MTG Melee, just like you know most of the online events that you would see. Uh, the only caveat for these events is that you're part of the Heasy Game Media Discord, um, just because it's an easy way to get in contact with me. That's really the only reason. Um, but there's there's things to do in there. But yeah, there will be an event channel in there. And I can't think of a better way to practice against people that are also going to be trying to get to Atlanta or wherever you're trying to go than playing in a free 1K or $10 1K. But it's come on, it's free. You just have to be a patron. May 28th. That's a Saturday. More information will be available. It'll be up. You can join the event It'll be pretty soon. I think it's like a week before events can actually start firing for atlanta or maybe it's a month no no it's it, it, it's still it's much july i can remember june no, it's june right no it's july oh well then it's really good practice before that right one thing that i will say what will say on this though is just like you know the these events have been pretty great in the past as we've done them throughout the last few years so you know be nice to each other in the discord you know the people are here to have fun and be always improving so it, it should be a good time. All right. Well, let's get into our main topic. What is control? And Spencer, you know, this is kind of your topic and your idea for a series. We're going to do more than just control on these sort of things. And so, Spencer, what's kind of uh, what are we kind of going for today? And what can the listeners kind of expect? The idea of this series is, you know, when we were doing our podcast meetings, one of the things that we talked about were kind of these these evergreen episodes that we could give to listeners. 
right? These, these things that they could come back to and use again and again to, you know, whether it's going back to the basics of something in magic or whether it's, you know, something that helps brand new players improve. And one of the things that we came up with is kind of a look at macro archetypes. I don't have the full list in front of us, but I think we talked about mid-range, ramp, control, combo, aggro, tempo. Those are the six that we talked about. I don't think we did another one, right? Sounds right. Yeah. And the one that I thought would be the easiest to start with is control. And and there's a reason for that. And a lot of people are going to get butthurt by the comment I'm about to say, but it's true. Control is the easiest deck to play in Magic. Or macro to play in Magic, I should say. And there are harder control decks than others. But what ends up happening for a lot of control decks is you end up in a flow chart situation. And because of that, I want to talk about the different... The things that we want to talk about today are kind of the different styles of control decks, the keys to control decks, and the heuristics of control decks. Um, Before we do that, though, Mason... Uh, should we kick it to Abe to talk about what control is? Control is the archetype, the macro archetype that is focused on answering everything and winning later. That is your your game plan. Your game plan is to make it so that all of your opponent's stuff doesn't matter. You're going to get to a point in the game where there's nothing they can do to hurt, hurt you anymore. You've You've completely snuffed all their resources, or at least the extent that you can, and then you can use something really powerful, usually um, you know an expensive haymaker style card like uh, a big planeswalker. I think the last big creature people used was like coma or you know casting like an emergent ultimatum. These kinds of cards that just from the point where they've resolved onward, the game is basically over. You know, there's nothing your opponent can do to come back. This will do the part of actually ending your opponent your opponent's game. Uh, you know, casting something like an an approach to the second sun maybe as your win condition. Something that just says the game is over, it's done. We go on, and that, you know, ultimately that means that your deck is mostly answers to things your opponent could do, and uh, ways to make sure that you are pulling ahead in cards. So that when you're taking these reactive, I'm using my card to kill your card, uh, things that you're going to have enough answers. Yeah, and eventually, as you play games of Magic, what ends up happening is, and this is like a, a classic thing, but there's well, someone's to beat down and someone's to control. And you'll eventually reach a point in your game where you start playing like you're a control deck, regardless of whatever deck you are. You know, you're like a burn deck and you've reached the point of ability. So now it's about not dying. You know, you're like a mid-range deck. It's about not dying. You're amulet titan. You've resolved your titan. It's about not dying at this point. So even though we're going to be talking a lot about actual control decks today, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about is actually applicable to other uh, archetypes, other stuff as you go on. But before we get to that, let's kind of go over some of these big picture styles of control decks. Even though we, we talked about how control is a macro archetype, there are lots of subtypes of control decks underneath there. And it's probably best to start with the OGs as boomer as they can go. Draw, go control decks. So the basic premise behind a draw, go control deck is as it sounds. Abe, you and I will play a match right now. Uh, land go. Draft turn? Mm-hmm. Land go. Uh, draw, land go. Spencer, if you want to talk about the podcast, Abe and I will be here and we'll finish right around the time yeah. normal one will. What's funny is I actually had to weirdly do some digging. It was not that easy to actually find the Randy Bueller Drago list. Don't know if this is the first version, but it's definitely credited as, as this. It has a few key aspects to it. Just really quickly, for this, you know, Whisper of the Muse is kind of a key card. 
It's one blue to draw a card. That's it. It's just a cantrip, but it has buyback for five. Um, so you can keep doing it. So you get card advantage. The other thing that this deck has is permission spell. So, you know, whether it's dissipate, I think that's a card that's in standard right now. Uh, dismiss another card that might be in standard. Uh, counter spell just entered modern Force spike is a card. We just talked about in the show. Uh, mana leak is a card that will probably come up a lot in this show, but you, you basically have card advantage in the form of whisper of the muse or wrath effect in disc. Uh, and then a win condition. So the way that the deck wins is it plays Rainbow of Reap. For those who don't know, that's just literally a flying creature with that phases out. So it uh, is like Etherling. It has four Stalking Stone. For a mere six mana, you can make a 3-3 three, three out of your land. I did forget that this deck played Stalking Stones, for what it's worth, <laughs> which is uh, you know a creature land that's hot. But it, this is actually not the most re- recent version of Drago that was extremely successful. In fact, we had an even more egregious version of Drago. One so egregious that I had to include it. For those who don't remember, the year was 2013. The player was William Huey Jensen. The deck was blue-white control. It had exactly two cards to win the game, really, if you really think about it. You could argue that it had more than that, but I'd say you're a liar. Uh, Those cards were Elixir of Immortality. And one Elspeth's Sun Champion. And two Mutavolts. Yeah, okay, whatever. You're a liar, Abe. That's not how you would win the game. In fact, I would argue you didn't even win the game with Elspeth's Sun Champion. It's funny. This is actually right when I start playing Magic is when this deck appeared. I knew it was. That's why I actually included it. Yeah. Well, so it's it's weird, too, because like, like Spencer mentioned, so this is a thing that's not just for boomers. Like, it still exists. It's been about nine years since this deck has really existed, we haven't had too many Drago. We had a little bit of a Teferi recently. Not in standard. We yeah. we have had it in modern. Drago has actually popped up multiple times in modern mm-hmm. uh, in the last, like, what, three years? Yeah, the current blue-white decks, I think, are about as close to, to Drago decks as you can get uh, in high-level competitive magic. Usually. Yeah, green. But it, what I was going to say is it's funny that uh, you know this build, we talked about how it has almost no-win conditions. It eventually reached the point where it had actual no-win conditions where it just played Elixir, and I guess technically had Mutavolts, which were often kill spells for other Mutavolts. It, it's interesting. It, it is a type of control deck. I think when a lot of people think of control, this is actually what they think of, is they think of Drago control. And it actually not, you know, we mentioned Blue White Control and Modern is probably the, the thing that's closest to it, but there's not actually that many decks that still play out like that. And that seems to be a, purpose, a purposeful decision almost. Yeah, I, I think that when you think about Drago Control and you think about, like, the one Efreet or, like, the one Elixir of Immortality, that's just not viable in a format like Modern, for what it's worth. Like, you just... It's not viable in standard yeah, either. The cards are too good. Yeah, exactly. So, like, things have to change, right? So, like, when you see a Control like now, right, they'll have more win conditions. And they'll have cards that service as... And we'll talk about this later. Like, it's it's on the channel, so we should have added it. Just, like, multi-utilitarian cards where they are or multi-utilitarian, multi-utility cards that act as both win conditions and card advantage or like win conditions and removal. Like Planeswalkers do a really good job of this. Enchantments do a really good job of this, stuff like that. But uh, the Drago control decks, they still act as Drago, but it's not Drago all the time. It becomes like draw, leave up as much mana as I possibly can go. And that's a different thing that we'll talk about later. The next one is tap out control. Yeah. Um, this is actually really common right now. 
um, only because of the card Bring to Light. To be honest, the reason that a format got broken in half was because of Tabhawk Control. Uh, and I'll give a little bit of history. Uh, historically, there was a blue-eye control deck in Standard that played Jace the Mind Sculptor. It was a Tabhawk Control deck that just dumpstered all over all of the creature decks that Zendikar offered. And it's like, okay, how could I possibly ever beat this deck? Well, the answer to that was a card called Squadron Hawk. You know, Stone Sword Mystic came along. I think that people, because of Cobblade, forget that blue-white tap-out was a deck. And the way that tap-out control typically works is it's really similar to draw-go, just in the opposite way. What it's trying to do is every turn use all of its manner or answer all of your things so that it is always ahead. And we'll, we're going to talk about like mana use later in the show, but as we do think about tap out control, because bring to light is like a deck. Bring to light is a deck that sees some play in pioneer these days. That is like very typical like this. Like you play a lot of things that answer things. Um, I think a good example from standard recently would actually be uh PV's world's winning deck. It was, a blue white tap outy deck where basically you would slam cards like dream trawler elspeth sons uh El- sorry elspeth conquers death cards like that and you would just answer your opponent's stuff and then you kind of turn into a delverish almost role where you or a protect the queen style game where you make sure you don't die you play your thing and then now it's like okay make sure the dream trawler crosses the finish line yeah this is actually a really common for tab out control decks for what it's worth is that they'll have like 10 15 instants in their deck where when they turn the corner they switch from tap out control to not draw go, but like, I don't know. I really know how to explain it. Like they have a pivot that they make where they are no longer tapping out all the time. You know, if you look at the, uh, the four color money pile decks in modern, those are also uh, decks that I would consider tap out control. Like they're just in the early game, they're casting the cards that require the most answer or answer the most things. You know, they're playing at times they've gone to playing threats like Ragavan or they're playing Renin six or Teferi um, time raveler. Just putting things on the board that are going to present problems in the same way that the the original tap out control decks that used like they play a wall of omens or they'd play uh, like an everflowing chalice to just ramp into casting Jace the Mind Sculptor as fast as possible and then having that draw them the cards or keep the board clear enough that their cards could go on to win the game because the pattern of control is answer the things, draw the cards, be so far ahead that then you have to protect. We've seen Money Pile do the thing where it has a ephemerate eternal witness and uh like counterspell to just lock people up uh once it has its planes order going or time warp whatever its kill condition decides to be um i think that's like probably the most existent modern tap out control deck uh, that people might be familiar with it's certainly the one that i thought of for modern that and you know whatever niv to light shift deck was there yeah and then the, the last type of control deck is combo control. These are the ones that get a little banned often because honestly, if these decks are good, they're really good. So the, the two most popular ones are Splinter Twin and Inverter of Truth. So those are decks that were so good they got banned. And then there are other ones like Team or Scapeshift that are really good decks and totally players in metagames, but they, they aren't banned. And basically what these decks try to do is we mentioned how in a tap out control deck, you kind of answer some stuff slam a thing, protect the queen, win the game, right? So imagine your dream crawlers, imagine your eternal witness, the ephemerate, that sort of stuff. This is much more like, hey, control a little bit, slam this thing, the game's over. So they can't go quite as long as you might expect, like a four-color money pile to, but they can stop the first two or three things while working towards this end goal of like, hey, 
Pestermite, Splinter Twin, make infinite Pestermites, I win. And so these sort of decks kind of work to control the short term so they can win long term. Yeah, the actual last, last one for what's worth is Tempo Control. Tempo Control is really interesting. We're going to, as we go into all of these different macros, we're going to cover things that blur the lines. And I think Combo Control and Tempo Control are, are some of them. And honestly, like Ramp will have some of this where it blends into Control Deck. But Tempo Control is typically a control deck that is trying to close out the game in interesting ways. You know, you get, you have two true tempo decks like Delver of Secrets and then you have like, you know, Cobblade. It's a tempo deck, but it it is a control deck. These decks for what it's worth, Mason is right, like the combo control decks, they get banned. The reason that there's not very many combo control decks and tempo control decks to talk about is cuz they get banned. You just don't get to do this. You don't get to both dictate the speed of the game control the game, answer everything, and have the best, like, the cheapest and best threats. Like, that's just not allowed. I don't really have a lot to say on tempo control. I can't think, like, fairies is tempo control, for example. Cobblade is tempo control. These are just oppressive decks, so I don't really know what to say on these. You know, the thing about those decks, those are decks that I'm definitely familiar with Cobblade, because that was, like, the first standard environment I existed in. I know my stuff about, about fairies, but... The thing that defines those kinds of, of decks is when the threats they're using to, to win the game are so cheap and can come down so early and start dominating games so early, like Stoneforge Mystic, obviously. That plus a batter skull dictated the pace of many games. It was such a potent threat. Or B- Bitter Blossom on turn two would do a similar thing. If your deck does that and then also can control the game at all the other stages, that's a big problem. And so it's it's more a product of like, you know, this is the most powerful you know, mid-rangey stuff you can do. It's the most powerful value generation or threats you could play in a controlling deck. So you get to do things cheap enough, you're generating a tempo advantage on your opponents. It's a huge outlier and there's always like that and when the combo decks are too fast in the, in the control decks. Those are two things that make it so that those decks have to have to go. I think that the exception to this is typically in Popper. And I think that the the prevalence of Gurmag Angler has actually really helped tempo control be a real thing in that format, uh, where like it gets to exist there because of Gurmag Angler. In all honesty, Murktide is also a tempo control deck. I would say that Grixis Dash Shadow is a tempo control deck. All of these decks can become problematic, but the thing to learn about them is like you're controlling the game in a lot of the ways that the ramp decks control the game where you're controlling them with questions in addition to answers. It's not just about answering your stuff. It's what Abe just said about, like, I'm putting something into play that if you don't answer, you're dead. But because you answered it, now I get to do this. It's a different type of control. Yeah, and speaking of that, it, it's occurred to me that we've left out one archetype, or one sub-archetype of control, and that's prison decks, which... We did have our own category for that, for what it's worth. Oh, did we? Okay. I was just going to bring up the uh, Death and Taxes deck in mod and like yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, essentially, I we're, and we'll talk about it more, but like another deck that blurs the line on like what's control and like another thing is Death and Taxes in uh, Legacy, which is essentially like a tempo control slash prison deck that tries to like dictate the pace of play, keep you from doing your thing, and make sure things don't get out of hand in a lot of various ways. So these archetypes and things blur the lines at times, like going to tempo control and combo control and stuff. But there's lots of different ways to play control. It doesn't have to be just all like, hey, 
counterspell, kill spell, big thing. It can be stuff like Mother of Runes, Thalia, uh, Sanctum Prelate. Like those sort of cards combo with a Wasteland. Boom, you have a little bit of recipe. So uh, just something to keep in mind that control doesn't always have to be sit there, do nothing forever and ever. There's lots of different flavors and ways to look at it. And in different archetypes and different worlds, you know, things like Jund uh, have been like control decks. So, yeah, I mean, we actually mentioned a lot of blue decks, but like mono black control has been a thing. Lots of different prison decks like Big Red is definitely a control deck in a lot of cases. Like in all honesty, there's been a lot of colorless card decks that have been control decks. Those usually, in my opinion, fall into like these rampy prison decks but like these blurred line things exists for sure but let's hop into the the keys to control so basically there are some things that are like normally prioritized by control more so than other things a deck like burn for example won't be as interested in this first thing which is card advantage so while all magic decks really want to have some way to generate card advantage in some way here or there Control typically is the one that is the easiest to understand and the easiest to kind of grok where it is. I want to have more cards because my cards trade with your cards. So if I have more, you have less. Yeah. Like control wants like raw card advantage. Right. Whereas like it's so I burns actually a great example of one that like they don't really care if it's raw card advantage. They just want to be up on mana cards in life. If they can do all three, they'll always win, but they don't really care if it's like, raw cards and what i mean by raw cards is like divination draws two for one right but light up the stage does that it doesn't really do that it's kind of like this in between i need enough cards to win is what burn is saying whereas control is saying like no i want to win the card advantage battle like that is something i want whether that's divination or wrath of god i don't care I just want to be up this specific resource. There's something that I think it was like one of the first things that I remember really leaving an impression on me about magic. That was something that Patrick Chapin talked about in Next Level Magic about control and specifically about card advantage. Is that card advantage, a lot of people think, oh, you need it because drawing cards is good because it gives you more stuff. But something that card advantage really gives you in addition to more stuff is more options. The more cards you have, the more cards you see, the more options you have in a game. And then when you consider about ending a game also, especially if you build your deck like a control deck, if you are drawing two cards a turn and your opponent is drawing one card a turn, you are able to almost lock them out of the game. And so when it comes to control decks, that's why they care so much about raw card advantage. Because once they're at a stage where they have accrued more raw cards than you, if they're still alive and they've had the time to to use these cards, you know, when they have three cards in hand and you have one and you're drawing one, they're going to be able to use their three cards to beat your two cards. And then they're going to be up for the rest of the game because their cards will continue to replace themselves. I really love what you just said, Abe, for what it's worth. And I want to build on it. Think about those moments when you're playing a control deck and you're really frustrated because they have three cards in hand. They're playing a land every turn. And now you're drawing lands and you're like, well, how do I win this game now? Well, the answer is you don't. They won that specific battle because they cared about raw cards more than you did. That is one of the battles that this archetype is trying to win on. And something that is a way to generate card advantage that also kind of blends our next one here in a second is Planeswalkers. And that's why we've seen since the release of Planeswalkers, they fit so well into control decks. Often, you know, specifically in formats like Standard, 
we'll see, you know, the better the Planeswalker is at kind of giving you more cards or generating pseudo cards. Like, you know, like an example might be Elspeth's Sun's Champion, right? It, it is half a Wrath of God and gives you a bunch of bodies that let you kind of control the board. It allows these control decks to really prosper and thrive. And they're also mana efficient uh, ways to take over a game. Because once you get a Planeswalker down, if you can protect it, you're not having to reinvest that mana every turn. You've spent it, and as long as it doesn't go away, you're going to accrue more. And mana efficiency is another huge part of control decks. We've seen this actually come up a bunch in the last couple of years, and specifically modern. And I'll use modern and work my way back here. So when Counterspell was announced for MH2, some people were like, and I'll admit, I, I think I was in the wrong here too, of Counterspell is going to be good in modern, there's no doubt. But is it so much better than Mana Leak in the way that the games play out that it's going to matter? And so uh, Aspiring Spike went and he played a control league with Mana Leak. And he kept a counter of times where Mana Leak was better because it was blue and colorless, so you could have it in your splash, and times he wished you could have had Counterspell. And by the end of his like six-hour stream, it was very, very high on having Counterspell. Uh, and that's because having these cards that answer everything for such little mana is really powerful. And we see in standard formats where if the threats are very cheap or are especially cheap and provide extra advantage, having cancel, so normally three mana for a counterspell, they aren't super oppressive. Where something like having actual counterspell, another two mana counterspell is so strong. It's why cards like Disruptive Protocol really catch your eye from Kamigawa. I want to go back to something you just said that's really important because we're going to move into mana efficiency here. It's something that blends, just like you said, that blends the card advantage thing into mana efficiency is you need to define what a card is worth in order to really understand what something is giving you in magic. While it is true that control wants raw cards, that thing we talked about, there is a recent Planeswalker that has now taken over modern, standard, pioneer, the Wandering Emperor, right? This technically does give you raw card advantage by removing a creature, right? But it also gives you simulated card advantage by putting counters and creating tokens. And Mason, I'll pose the question to you. How many cards do you normally get out of your Wandering Emperor? I mean, the truth is you've probably never lost a game that one is resolved, but like, you know, what? It, what is it really worth? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, it's a thing for, I was going to bring up to y'all, so I'm glad you brought it up. It seems like Spencer agrees that they're worth a card. I, I think Abe does as well. But for me, I, I believe that things like tokens are easily worth a card, assuming that they are actually are, are stat lines that matter. You know, they have some effect or role in your deck that really matters. I think two two vigilance is worth a card for what it's worth. Yeah, like, I would argue I just a two-two two is. is uh, like just a regular one-one or maybe even a regular two-two. Like a grizzly bear might not be, but like... 2-2 two, two Vigilance, I'll give it a card. Yeah, I'm a little less picky. I would say 2-2 two, two is a card. But that's neither here nor there. Plus one, plus one counters. You get a lot of card advantage out of them, right? And finding ways to get extra card advantage out of your things like the Wandering Emperor are also really important and really good ways to eke it out. When like looking at your control deck, though, when we're talking about mana efficiency, this is one of the things that matters so much is how do your cards trade? How efficient are they? And like, you know, do they do the job they're doing? Because if your deck was just trying to like turbo through to find stuff, right? You would see things like Street Race and Bob will be played in every modern deck, right? And all these decks, because all our decks would be eight. There's some people that think that's right for what it's worth. It, it, your decks would be eight less cards. And since your deck would be eight less cards, right? You would just find things switching. But the opportunity cost of a card really matters. And that matters in control decks as well. 
where we look at mana efficiency, where it's like, okay, I can play this seven mana wrath that answers everything, but maybe I'd rather play this four mana card instead that really answers less things or something like March of Otherworldly Light, which can be mana efficient if you're willing to give up some cards or like it's a little bit of a catch-all. You have to figure out how many of this card can I actually get away with playing because it will cost me mana. Abe, when you're looking at your control deck and building your suite of removal, how often are you looking at specifically like the mana cost of the, your answers? You know, something that is really important when you think about control is that the most important resource to control for their game plan is having time. The more draw steps to take, the more mana that they're able to have because they make more land drops, the more their cards are able to impact because they're expensive, they're able to use all the cards they draw. And so when it comes to making sure that you're staying alive, the answers you play, those being mana efficient, is extremely important. I think that part of what made tap out control possible to exist when it came about was just the existence of planeswalkers, like you were saying, Mason, being these mana efficiency engines. Like Jason Mind Sculptor specifically, obviously one of the best planeswalkers of all time, not rivaled until many design mistakes later with Oko, is just the ability for it to draw cards or keep the board clear on its own meant that once you had it down, once you invest that four mana once, then it's doing all of this work for you while you're able to spend your mana in other places. And so when you look at your removal suite, making sure that your removal is stuff that you can cast while still developing the rest of your game plan, or that it's removal that answers so many of the things that matter and doesn't leave you falling behind in the race for time, that's like the most important thing, right? That's why for a long time before we had Prismatic Ending and March of Otherworldly Light, Path to Exile was the best card for a control deck to play. And up until Fatal Push was printed, you couldn't play a control deck that wasn't light. Because if you wanted to answer something that you couldn't kill with just a Lightning Bolt, which is what people used to beat the fact Lightning Bolt was in the format, someone played a Tarmogoyf, the only way to make sure that you were able to still do things you needed to do and answer a card like that was to play Path to Exile. It's so funny to listen to you make this point, Abe. Because one of the met decks that you mentioned, right, is the, the Tabot Control deck that we have in Modern Rand, the four-color deck, right? And as you're talking, I'm like, holy crap, he is describing Renin 6. Actually, the way Renin 6 plays in that deck is exactly what you just said about Jace the Mind Sculptor. And I had never thought of that. I, I think that people immediately saw that card and thought of Jun, thought of, like, you know, all of the things that you can do with it. But truthfully, like, it acts just like that Jace the Mind Sculptor did. And while, you know, Jace the Mind Sculptor was the face of magic for years and years and years, the segment is mana efficiency about this point, right? And, like, is there a more mana efficient strong planeswalker than Ren 6 that, like, gets to elevate your game plan and also control the board? Like, just do it the all? The Fairy 3 is the only one that well, <laughs> Depending on the format you're talking about, I think that, you know, Teferi Hero of Dominaria had a period of time where it was, you know, played over and, you know, played in more copies than Jace the Mind Sculptor in the modern format. Four to two for a long time in modern. Yeah, because because of the fact that, you know, because your answers were mana efficient at two mana, it was effectively a three mana card that started to generate you the card advantage. And from then on, then suddenly you're able to deploy even more sorcery speed things and leave up your interactive mana, right? And so and right now, the Wandering Emperor, not on the same scale as a card like Renin 6, but it having flash and being able to interact in combat or allow you to still have the option to cast the spells that matter for interacting with the opponent, but still develop something that can start taking over the game. 
that potency is is really shown. And when you think about man efficiency and card advantage together, planeswalkers do it in spades. You know what else they do is they do inevitability. And I think Jace the Mind Sculptor like really showed us the power of this. I'm gonna be honest, I actually miss Jace the Mind Sculptor standard. Having the game revolve around Jace was like one of the most skill testing and fun things to ever happen in Magic for me. But the inevitability of like all planeswalkers off of this, so like I don't want to discount the rest of them, but what is inevitability in a control deck mission? It's eventually you will reach this point where if this thing sticks around, the game is yours. And that can manifest in a bunch of ways. We've mentioned planeswalkers a bunch in the show. We've seen things like Mastery of the Unseen in the past. We've seen cards that like disenchantments that accrue weird advantage. Just things along those lines. Once this thing stays in play, if unchecked, you cannot lose the game where it is just a matter of time for you winning it. And it is a key part of a lot of control decks, especially decks like uh, Draw Go, to have something that once it comes down, it is over. So we, we mentioned Jace is a great example. Uh, you know, I think Chandra Torture Defiance is like a, a more, well, I didn't see a lot of control play, kind of does a similar thing in her decks when she gets kind of up high in loyalty, the decks pivot to be that way. And then we also see this for things like Aetherling in Standard, uh, when we talk about like the original, sorry, the most recent draw go in Sphinx's Control, where Aetherling was a creature that could phase out, and so it became very hard to ever actually kill this thing, and it was unblockable, so it would kill you eventually. I, I think about right now in Modern, um, my friend Quentin Pierce, he played this really sick uh, four-color list at a 3K. And there was a turn where uh, he was playing the four-color mirror, and he had a loop of Eternal Witness and a Call, and his opponent had Ragavance in his deck, in their deck. And just because of that, uh, Quentin got a win. I don't remember how he got the list from. I might remember if anybody ever, you know, credited my stuff on the podcast, but I think that like it doesn't just have to be. A one thing right it can be a thing that you've put together that because you've put it together it is insurmountable when i think about inevitability it's funny that you talked about how aetherling is the inevitability card but when i think of those decks i think about how elixir of immortality is the card that defines inevitability more than any other card if you had to explain to someone what inevitability is what is more inevitable than drawing every card in your deck and losing the game because you cannot draw a card anymore and what elixir of immortality does is give you even more time and you'll shuffle your graveyard back in your deck. You'll gain five life. You will never run out of answers because all the cards you're casting go back in your graveyard, then back in your library. I think it was, uh, I forget which Pro Tour was. Wasn't that even Flock one uh, with blue eye control? I remember this. Where, oh my gosh. Where it was a game in the quarterfinals, or maybe it was the semifinals. It was a game in the semifinals against Mono Black, where at one point in like game three, he moves to discard and shows like four cards he's discarding off of a Sphinx's after drawing too many cards Sphinx's Revelation and just shows them to his opponent and his opponent has to con- like concedes on the spot because he knows that if these are the cards right, that are being discarded, yeah. that there's no way he can beat the seven cards that are being kept. And that, it, I think it was, that is the core I think of inevitability. It was, was it Dissolve Elspeth? It might have been Dissolve Elspeth Negate something else. Yeah, it was, it was just like, yeah. if that was just his hand he couldn't lose. yeah exactly and it was um, like you have to beat this every turn because there's the sphinx's river in the yard as well this is going to be my hand for the rest of the game ggs when you think about inevitability and you think about what uh what the end state for control deck is it's the same reason that we kind of say that a prison deck is somewhat of a control deck right is that it's about establishing 
some sort of hard locked state in the game where your opponent can no longer make any gain any ground. And that can be, you know, an actual hard lock. Like uh, I've got chalice on all the numbers and all your spells will get countered. You can live, none of your cards can be cast. None, none of them can do anything. Or it could be something close to that. Like you were describing with an eternal witness, ephemerate, Eldamri's call loop where you're going to be able to find all of the answers you need to make the game not winnable. And sure, maybe if they could draw their entire deck, they would find a way out of it or you would run out of things eventually, but they're not going to have time to. And so when it comes to inevitability, just knowing that if the game continues on, every turn you're getting closer and closer and then eventually you will have to win. There is no way that you don't. Because you're going to have more resources, and their resources aren't going to Don't tell me how to live my life. I get to pick when I win the game, <laughs> Tell that to the concede button. It's a, ba- it's a battle of wills, <laughs> not a battle of wits. Yeah. Along those same lines of Spencer gives permission to win the game or lose the game. Uh, permission versus removal is a, a kind of a key part of these control decks that we need to talk about. That's a little more brass taxes than uh, these kind of big picture ideas. So the idea is basically... Permission being things like counter spells, you know, and stuff like that versus removal being like actual removal spells. You might think like lightning bolt path to exile prismatic ending. And typically great control decks have a mixture of these sort of things and cards that answer a wide swath of stuff so that when they enter, you know, open metagames and things like this, they're actually able to answer everything that's going on. For what it's worth, I actually do think that tax spells fall into that permission category as well. This might sound really weird to a lot of people, but I actually think that really large creatures can fall into removal for a lot of control decks. So, like, if if we're talking about blowing the lines, like, a 6-6 for an inexpensive amount of mana that can't attack or block, we'll just say that this card, it, while it is a creature that can be removed, it removes everything that's not a 6-6 from the battlefield, right? And a tax spell, you have to ask it for permission to cast your spells, right? And that's kind of the the delineation here. So I just wanted to include those. Yeah, and, and the spells that are good in a format for, you know, either answering cards or, or, you know, what cards are you going to allow to impact the game, right? That's what Permission Build does. If you're countering a spell, you're saying, not this time, we're not going to do that part of it. And if you're playing those spells, then, you know, deciding which of those are the best kinds of answers really comes down to the things that people are trying to do, right? For a long time, people played main deck mystical disputes and aether gusts during the format where Oko was was really dominant. It's like you wouldn't do that if not for the fact that all the cards that you were playing against were green red threats or blue cards, and so you know, those cards are normally inefficient or not as reliable at answering things. But when they are, they're the best ones to be playing. And because you know that you're going to be playing against all these things, you need to answer, and that these will be good at answering. You play them, uh, and and so. At the core of figuring out what the good permission and the good removal is, is the threats you're playing against. And that's kind of what makes control difficult to construct, but simple to play, is that you'll always be having the best answers if you're playing a good control deck. You'll always have the best cards to be casting. Yeah, and it's why you should stop trying to play mono black. It's because you can't just build decks that way anymore. Sorry, that was a... At, at standard players? At, at current standard players trying to play mono black, yes. All right, I'm going to say this and we're going to move on. Invoca Despair is the black sphinx's revelation let's move on let's move uh, on i said we're moving and moving on (laughs) that card is good i will i will concede Uh, the number of times where like they cast the card it's like well i deserve that i deserve that happening to me that card is a banger but uh no let's move on to heuristics uh so kind of wanted to talk about some stuff that are 
you know, just heuristics about control decks and each kind of bring up point to talk about. And Abe, I'll let you go first here. What's kind of a heuristic you have for control decks that might be helpful for your listeners if they're playing control decks or trying to get in the mind of a control player? So the number one heuristic that I will always tell people if they ask me about how to play control better is something that I learned from uh, known control master, Jonathan Sakenik, probably my best friend, definitely my best friend. He once told me... It hurts a little, Abe. It hurts I, a little. Sorry, man. That's how it is. I'm just uh, kidding. I'm just kidding. But since you can't beat him in magic, you can't beat him in the context of Abe's <laughs> friendship. It's just... He L's is actually around. unbeatable. <laughs> he was teaching me a lot about how to play control because he used to play... And a t- time before time, he played a Jeskai control deck with Lingering Souls that uh, some some friends of his and now friends of mine had built where like how how was it that you were winning so much more than us when you were playing this deck and he said well it was simple all i did was i thought of when it when it came to casting lingering souls or a planeswalker or whether or not he was going to answer something was if i tap all of my mana this turn to cast lingering souls is there anything i can foresee my opponent doing on their turn that makes me regret and if the answer was no, then he could do it, right? Because he was safe to. And if the answer was yes, well, then now he knew that he could continue to play cautiously. And because as a control deck, he's positioned to have the inevitability in the scenario. As long as he doesn't give that up, he's able to, you know, find another turn where it's like, okay, well, now I have two more lands in play. I can leave up that counter spell and still cast my spell. And as long as he's able to generate that time and know that there's nothing that can go wrong with the shields down, that's the easiest way to start figuring out when you can put the shields down and when you can't. Just think about what it looks like from their turn to your turn. What are the cards they're casting? And that leveled me up so much. Lingering Souls is so, such a sweet control card because it doesn't look like one, but it both buys you time and wins the game. It's a hot one. I'll go next. I have a couple. My first one was actually, I think Abe said it more eloquently, but it would be understanding your deck's flowchart. And I know that sounds stupid. Like, I know a lot of people don't want to hear this, but like, that is what playing control is. It really is a flowchart. And I think that Abe just described a flowchart. I don't know why that upsets people when I say it, but it does. But the truth is, is like, the reason that that control is simplified magic is because you get to decide whether the questions being asked matter, and you get to decide whether it's time for you to ask a question. So you get to control both sides of the questions. And so understanding that flowchart is number one. Number two, I would say, is understanding what your deck is trying to do on the play and the draw once you understand that flowchart. There are cards uh, such as Jaswari Disruption that are substantially worse on the draw. And understanding like your sideboard plans and things like that on the play or the draw can be really impactful in control decks. And it is extra work for a lot of people, but I think I think that's a heuristic that you should follow. And then I think that the last one that I will say for control is kind of the, the idea that Mason brought up early in the show, which is like understanding what you need to get out of your card. I've seen a lot of people not wrath soon enough. I've seen a lot of people wrath too soon. I think it's your job to combine what Mason and Abe uh, said at the beginning of the show and what Abe just said to understand, like, what does this card need to do for me to get to the position to win this game? I don't need to do more. 
I don't need to do less. I don't need to be greedy. I don't need to be addicted to value. And that's not just for Wrath of God, but it's all of your cards. And then the last one is to understand your sequencing. The number of times where people missequence their permission and removal spells, and it costs them a game because they don't have the right one in the right spot, it mind-boggling to me. Yeah, the number of times where you could have won a game if you had counterspell instead of removal, or removal instead of counterspell, you, you need to know which one you need at different spots in the game, and that's also about understanding your flow chart. So, those are mine. Mine is more of like, you should try to dictate the pace of play, and do not let them dictate the, pl- the pace of play for you. And this is also a thing where if you're listening to this and you're like, dang, I really hate control decks. All I've really learned so far is they're boring. Uh, this might be helpful for you where it is your job to force the control player to have certain things and to do certain things and to fight battle on your terms. And if you are the control player, you are trying to not make it that way. And that can ha- manifest in various ways. And part of that is kind of like actualizing saying the flowchart thing and thinking about what they have. But also it's about putting them into spots where like, they kind of have to do this sort of thing. So realizing, you know, like, hey, I can, you know, play a Dream Trawler now. They're trying to make the game about this. I'm going to make the game about this instead. So making sure that you're just actually playing the game in front of you and not falling back too, too much on the heuristics and the heuristic topic, I think is a uh, pretty important one there. Um, can I can I add to that one? Because sure. I think that one's really good. One of the things that... I see a lot of players don't understand everything that we just said happens in reverse as Mason just said. So like one of the key things about beating control decks is understanding their key turns. When do they want to get card advantage? When are they the most mana efficient? When are they the least mana efficient? Uh, What are their key cards? What is their inevitability? And if you can disrupt those things from them, you get to do what Mason just said, right? You then dictate the questions. As I just said, like control gets to play both sides. They get to ask the questions and answer the questions. If you flip it on them, they can't do either, right? And so understanding what they're trying to do uh, is really helpful. And I know a lot of people love to like over sideboard for control, but right? I think this is something Mason said on the show where it's like, why do you have four duresses, two go blanks, and like, three negates in your sideboard. It's like, oh, I hate losing the control. It's like, well, that's a stupid reason. Like, you should not have all of this. You don't need all of this. Instead, you should just learn what the control deck is trying to do and stop it. Yeah, I, I think this, what you're saying, really manifests a lot in standard decks of the past and part of the reason why the Wandering Emperor is so strong now. But I think uh, a classic example is the Blue-White Teferi deck, where it had a, you know, a bunch of counter magic on turn three and on turn four, wanted to resolve a glimmer, set up the Teferi, slam it Teferi. So you would very often try to, settle. you know, settles key too. you don't want to play on the turn where they're leaving up mana to just interact with you. And you want to fight on the turn where they're trying to draw a card. Right. So like you might play something that really doesn't matter on the, the turn when they have three mana up because it's like, oh, OK, yeah. Like if you want to trade a counter spell for this one one, I am all in. They probably let it resolve. Right. Then when they're leaving up their glimmer, when they're trying to find their Teferi, then you can fight on those terms. Like here's my Chandra Torture Defiance. I'm going to push in put a little pressure here and then it also develops even more so where it's like okay you're putting this pressure on them can they afford to tap out and then you start deploying threats and now you've stranded a counterspell in hand when players lose to control decks and they say they oh they had everything all the time because they're playing into their game plan this is why we see cards like the wandering emperor so strong and like spitzer mentioned settle the wreckage it plays in 
on the same turn. And so the Wandering Emperor Pinch is part of the reason why it's so much harder to. So I mentioned in Pioneer when it was we talked about that so much, right? Is having the four mana spell also be on the same turn as an answer spell and get to hold both up is part of the reason why we see this card be so strong. Same thing for the you know the more mid-rangey decks, etc. that get to play the Wandering Emperor. So that's the thing to think about if you're playing control decks or playing against them is like, how am I going to like work these things into the turn? How am I going to make their play? And like as a control deck, like, and it's kind of regurgitating what apes at the beginning there, but like, okay, like if I do this now, am I going to fall too far behind the eight ball? Am I going to be able to actually answer these sort of things? Can I wait a little longer? So I think that's pretty important. That's going to do us though for control as the big picture thing. We mentioned it at the beginning, Spencer did, but I'll back him up so he doesn't feel like he's alone. Uh, control is, without a doubt, the easiest archetype to play in Magic consistently. Aggro is consistently the hardest one. Get over it. Your control decks, you get to have all these answers for all these different problems. And the reason you feel your control deck is typically so much harder is because typically they're built poorly or they're easily exploitable. So when you're playing control decks... Really try to think about is this the, like assuming you're trying to maximize for efficiency or whatever. If you love playing control decks, go off king or queen. I'm all there for you. You know, I play on playable piles all the time. You're going on Yogwath and me to the moon. But if you're trying to do for efficiency and tournament stuff, think about it like do I have the right answers? Do I have the right removal suite? Do am I doing the right thing? The thing I do with money pile for every tournament I play that's big is like, okay, what cyborg cards can I get for the most swath of answers here? Is this a dress down? Or is this an eighth or gust weekend? Make sure you're lining your cards up. Think about how they're going to be playing playing this game out. And if you do that sort of thing, you're going to typically get a lot more bang for your buck on control decks. I want to be clear that nobody is in more denial in the history of constructed criticism than Mason Clark is right now. The dude has pumped nothing but blue-white control and four-color control in modern all year long. Like... 100% of 2022 is Mason promoting control decks. White Pioneer, baby. Uh, just like... I, I never printed blue-white control on Whatever. That was a Pioneer? Whatever. I don't remember what format it was. I just want to be clear that, like, you are Snake Eye right now, Mr. Mason Clark. You are Snake Eye. When it's the best deck, it's the best all deck. Right, all right. Four-color control is the best deck by a lot right now. So look at the past weekend. Someone put an Ember Cool in their main deck and won. They just played down a card. Anyways, uh, <laughs> you can get a, a lot out of your bang for your buck. Um, it is much better to kind of, you know, figure out the times to do the stuff. Um, and that's going to do it. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg to support the show. You get things like the entry into our free 1K that we talked about later. Uh, and you also get to ask a Patreon question just like this one if you read on the show. Adrian says, I'm trying to balance playing and improving at Limited, doing the same for Pioneer, and improving at League of Legends. <laughs> Would really want some tips for balancing different formats while also making meaningful Im uh, improvements in them. How do I make a meaningful improvements while balancing multiple formats in games? And Abe, I would love to throw this to you first because I know that you've been working on Eternal as well as Magic. So, you know, I know you've been doing that and I've been doing Valorant. So I'm curious to see what your process has been with that. With Streets of Nuke Panda coming out around the same time that I was preparing for this Eternal draft open, I set goals for myself that were very achievable. And you go back to the episode on setting gold, goals for yourself that really, really helps with this because what you're running into is going to be more of an organizational issue with your time. Then it is going to be a capacity issue, right? Like 
learning things and especially understanding more about the games you're playing and getting better at them, that's something kind of natural. You know, you, you play the game, you get a little better at it, you see more situations, your knowledge base grows. And whether that be from situations in Pioneer where maybe you're learning a deck and you, you know, figure out something new about the sequencing or about how a matchup plays out and you're also playing limited and you figure this new thing out, those two things exist. But for me with Eternal, it was, I know that I'm going to rely a lot on my magic background for a game that's very similar. So what are the things I needed to learn? They were all of the fast effects in the game that, that were, you know, things I just didn't know, right? The card pool was new to me. So I didn't know that. So I said that was my goal. So I you know, made an entire spreadsheet with, uh, with those things, looked over all the resources available on that. So I could know the things that I was looking to play around, basically learning all of the morphs as is the best equivalent I can give you, learning all the morphs and learning all the tricks. And at the same time, for Streets of Nukemana, I was figuring out what I thought the archetypes looked like, what I thought the decks looked like. And knowing that those were my goals, it made it easier to spend some time you know, reading over, memorizing, playing a couple of games, thinking about which of these cards is best in this game I'm not used to, while also looking at a different thing where I know a lot more about it and doing the same thing. It, it's about organizing your time, making sure you're, uh, you're, you know what you're going in for, because you don't want to waste any of the time that you're spending not getting something out of it. Hey, uh, Spencer, what about you uh, when it comes to, you know, you've been doing a lot of Smash Brothers stuff? I want to cover the format thing first, because I think it's applicable to more than just Adrian. This is something that we're all going to struggle with now that PTQs are back, especially the way that they have PTQs set up. So the way that, our, I guess they're RCQs, the way that RCQs are going to work, they can be modern, sealed, with draft top eight, standard or pioneer. And you are probably going to be in a place that if you have as many as we do in Utah, you're going to have multiple formats you have to prepare for. It's just going to happen, especially because of modern's popularity. You're probably going to have Modern and Pioneer for sure, and you're probably going to have Sealed for sure this season. Those three formats, they're going to happen. So how do you prepare for multiple formats? Well, one, you listen to podcasts like this. Like, I know that that sounds weird because like I'm on the podcast. I actually listen to uh, Smash Podcasts. Everyone that I can find that I think helps me, I listen to. I listen to Drafting Archetypes every week by Sam Black. I listen to limited resources every week. I listen to uh, Lords of Limited every week. Like I, I do think that, that listening to podcasts or consuming content does help. Uh, the next thing that I would say is you need to set reasonable goals. Is your goal to do well your RCQ? Is your goal to just improve? That's kind of a nebulous goal, but like that can be your goal. Like you want to get three trophies a, a format or whatever. A really good example of setting reasonable goals for what it's worth. This might not make sense to non-smashers, but like I have a goal to two two pools once in Utah is like my first goal. And that might sound crazy, but like that's a really hard goal for Smash. For like a new person. I think you need to set reasonable goals. Like what what does it mean for you, Adrian, to improve at league? Like what what are you trying to achieve there? Because if you're trying to go to the pro tour in Magic and be a pro league player, I'm going to tell you you're not going to do both. Like, I'm going to be honest. I'm gonna, I, I don't know of a person that's good enough to, like, I think the only person that I can think of is Leffen, who did it 
in multiple fighting games. So, like, if you want to be pro Eternal, pro Hearthstone, and pro Magic, and pro Pokemon, I think there's multiple people that do some of that stuff. But, like, if you want to be pro real-time strategy and pro Magic the Gathering, like, that's not going to happen. There's not enough hours in the day. Um, so I think setting reasonable goals is the, the next piece of advice that I would give you. I think that some amount of what you do needs to be fun. I draft for fun. I also happen to love limited. I think that it naturally fits the things that I like to do in magic. And so I just trust that as I improve at magic and as I continue to draft in the formats where I care about it and where I have PTQs or RCQs or whatever, I'll draft more. I'll play more sealed and I'll naturally get to that point. Right. But that's the thing that I do for enjoyment. I don't make sealed or limited this thing that like I have to be knowledgeable about uh, because when I do, it becomes less fun. And the last thing I'll say is squirtle squirt. I think a lot of great stuff was said here. I, I think about it like this. So I am waiting to improve at uh, a game called Valorant, which is a tactical shooter. If you've never heard of it. Um, and I'm still doing all the magic stuff, right? But when I say I want to improve at both, that's not exactly true. I want to be competent at Valorant, and I want to be great at magic. And I think being realistic with yourself and figuring out where you're trying to do that sort of thing super matters, like Spencer said there. And the way I'm doing this in Valorant is like, there's a thing called aim labs, which is basically like like actually practicing, like flicking your mouse around and putting things there. And I'm doing that for 20 minutes a day, every day. Uh, me and my girlfriend are actually both doing it. And we've like kind of like told each other we're going to do this every day so we get better. And for what it's worth, I am very bad at Valorant. I am the second to lowest rank possible. And since starting to do that little bit of practice and actually practicing, we're like top fragging all our games and moving up ranks really quickly. Cause a little bit, I want to like fist bump you right now. Cause like, I'm so bad at smash. Let's go yeah. a little, a little practice goes a long way. And so uh, for magic though, right. It, it's very different where I'm trying to work on different, more complex things. And I'm also trying to make sure that my like, tactical sense of the game is still always good and improving and stuff like that. And so my advice to people when it comes to magic, if they're hearing this is, and this is probably going to rub a lot of people the wrong way is you're not as good as you think you are. And you are actively missing lots of small and little things. And if you're wanting to do all these little things and improve, I would suggest working on the brass tacks of all these little things. If your goal is like, I just really would love to like go to a one K or two K locally and like have a realistic chance to top eight and maybe win. I think that's a totally reasonable goal. And if your goal is like, I'd love to hit gold in League of Legends, totally reasonable goal. And maybe you want to like also do it with something else too, right? Like limited, you'd like to hit. And it's like, cool, awesome. All these things are take your time. But if you practice like doing the right thing and practicing the right way, you'll go really far. I also think it builds, right? You just talked about the thing that you're doing in Valorant. That is probably something that you did in magic in a different way, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's essentially learning the actual game and making sure you're not missing stuff. Because what, what pe ends up happening is people get, like, okay at magic, and then they want to get good at magic. And what they don't realize is that they stop paying attention to the little stuff. And like Spencer mentioned, they get lazy. And they start missing all these little things. And at the end of the day, no one's great at magic who misses the little things, and no one's good at magic who often misses the little things. So you have to, like, actually practice doing the right sort of stuff and always be getting the little things down. Because those matter so much more than like, yeah, so like this past weekend, 
I doubled days so I could get around the Rashad import that my death and taxes opponent had on me, even though I knew they could pay for the days both. And I was able to cast my two bolts over two turns because they were chain lightnings and I won. Uh, that's like cool or whatever. But like the, if I had just like, I don't know, played my lands better and sequenced tighter and brainstormed better and pondered better, I, I would have won anyways. So like, yeah, it's cool. I was like thought of this weird line that worked, but like, why not just play better? And you should be practicing playing better. I, I had someone come up to my uh, Twitch chat and she's someone local, and she was like, I have just lost about half my games that I've played for the last two weeks. Is there any advice you can give me? And my advice is, and the same thing I'll tell you, Adrian, listeners here, is you're not playing good enough. If you're at 50% of your game's wins and loss, you're probably leaving some like small plays on the table, especially if you're like switching around with a bunch of little decks. So, uh, Adrian is in the live chat, and I just want to read his comment that he just left. He says... I want to get better at Lee because I'm horribly mechanically and bad in general. So improving the game I'm bad at helps me in real life challenges that I'm not the best at. I do think that this is true for what it's worth, Adrian. Like if your goal of getting better at league is just to improve at something, that's a good goal. I'm not a fan of smart goals, but I would make this one measurable. I think smart goals are stupid, but I do think that this is one where you, no matter what your goal is, you should, you should make it measurable. It's obviously nebulous in games like Magic and League is less nebulous because it's there's a lot less variance. But like, you should figure out what is my goal in limited, what is my goal at RCQs and constructed, and then what is my goal in League. There's this thing called objectives and key results. They're called OKRs that happen in software uh, that uh, Google adopted. There's a book called Measure What Matters. It is very much a software development book, but it is the one that I'm having my software, my product team read next, my teammates in product read next. And what it's about is, is creating these objectives that are qualitative and then measuring them with key results that are quantitative. If you can measure them with quantitative things, you can say that you did this qualitative thing. If you don't know what I just said, you should Google it. It will make a lot of sense. Um, but basically, you want to make this nebulous thing true by giving it non-nebulous criteria. And if you can do that in a game like Magic or or in Limited or Constructed, you will be able to say, like, I did improve at this thing. That's my last piece. That is going to do it for this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. If you want to find us and help us, you can go to Twitter, YouTube, all the places with the name History Criticism, like, sub, comment, leave reviews. Those things always help. Uh, the show will always be free, but that's a great way to support the show. If you, you know, want to do that, share with your friends. It's important. Uh, make sure to check out the rest of the network. The network includes Drafting Archetypes with Sam Black, a very good limited podcast the set just dropped. Kind of the time to get in, get a lot of interesting and hot takes on cards, figure out what's going to be the truth and not with Sam. And then also common knowledge, all popper, all the time. They just got a new set with some pretty strong comments. So probably some exciting stuff going on over there. So make sure to check them out in their popper set review. Abe, if someone wants to find you, where can they go? They can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. Spencer, what about you? You can find me losing my shit over this freaking Paddington 2 Primeval Titan on Twitter at Spencer13H. I'm like actually dying right now. I cannot believe you posted this during the show. Uh, I 
I, I can I got I cannot physically control myself right now and I'm like I'm like sweating. Oh my gosh. This is the greatest thing to ever hit the internet. I'm losing That's it. Really I'm like actually not okay. So if you don't know, I'll, I'll, Spencer, I'll, give, I'll give you 20 seconds to recover. So there's a Twitter account called at living cards, MTG. He is like just a guy and he has photoshopped Paddington bear from the hit movie Paddington bear into magic cards every day for like the last three months. Uh, and there have been some real bangers like Paddington bear stuck in the thing in the ice. That was, Paddington that bear, was my previous uh, favorite for what it's worth. That one was good. Yeah. Paddington bear. I think he picked up by Yargles. Another, another banger one. There, oh, sorry. It was getting eaten by the uh, the serpent from Theros. Oh my gosh. But there's a bunch of bangers, and today he put Paddington Bear on the primeval Titan it spot. Is, it so. is unbelievable. Uh, okay. You can find me streaming about this specific point in this meme at twitch.tv slash easymedia. I plan on doing at least something in the afternoon. I, I'm going to do a May the 4th stream. I don't just stream magic. I'm going to do a Star Wars stream on May the 4th. You can find those VODs on the Heezy YouTube channel. But I also, all the stuff that I will do for Magic moving forward will be on the Constructive Criticism channel. But yeah, you can check that out at twitch.tv slash Media. And then now that everything's calmed down, we're not all dying anymore. Uh, you can find me on the YouTube channel making videos like uh, the four-color uh, control. That's right, control deck that Mason Clark will be uh, helping me pilot. If you want to find me, you can go to Card Kingdom each and every Thursday articles. There you can find me on this podcast. And let's have a little small update. You can find me at twitter.com slash Mason E. Clark underscore. Now, you might be wondering, why is there an underscore? Well, last week, I thought it'd be really funny to make my name Elon Musk and make a tweet about that. Anyways, I got permaband. So this is a call to action, gamers. I need Twitter followers. I have no followers. I have a new Twitter account. I'm grinding back up. So if you want to find me, it's at Mason E. Clark underscore. You know, if you thought, hey, I was already following Mason, double check, baby. I'm giving away DreamHack tickets. Uh, and that's the last place you can find me. I will be at DreamHack Dallas June 3rd through the 5th. Uh, I will be doing some interview stuff. I am a hashtag sponsored content creator invited to that event. So it's going to be really fun with me in Dallas for five days. So if you're from there, let me know. Maybe we can hang out. And uh, yeah. Check if out. Mason hits a thousand followers by the time the next episode goes up, we will donate every follower that he gets. What do we want to do? We want to do like a quarter. We want to do a dollar to a charity. If we were to do, I have 614 followers. I might have lied a little bit about how many. I have relatively none to where I was before. I was yeah, at three thousand. Like, I, I just want to get to two. Yeah. Buddy. We're, we're getting you to one guy. <laughs> to everything that gets him to a thousand if we get him to a thousand for the next episode so, so there you go 386 dollars on the line right now thank you all so much for listening a drop a clout for your boy and we'll see you all next week for another episode of constructed criticism <laughs>